Hello and welcome to Sleep Cove. Please listen in a place where you can comfortably go to sleep. Hi everyone and hope everyone is having a really good week. This episode is the 50th episode and I really want to thank all the listeners out there, especially the ones who've been sharing the podcast and leaving fantastic reviews. For everyone, thank you. And I hope I can continue making everyone have a good night's sleep. This episode begins with a classic tale from Arabian Nights. With some voyages of the adventurer Sinbad the Sailor. Then there is a cabin visualisation. Where you will go to a cabin set in the landscape of the Rocky Mountains. And fall asleep. I hope you enjoy. If you would like to skip the Arabian night story and go straight to the cabin visualization, please go to 43 minutes. And let's begin. The Seven Voyages of Sinbad the Sailor In the times of the Caliph, Harun al-Rashid, there lived in Baghdad, a poor porter named Hindbad, who on a very hot day was sent to carry a heavy load from one end of the city to the other. Before he had accomplished half the distance, he was so tired that finding himself in a quiet street where the pavement was sprinkled with rose water and a cool breeze was blowing. He set his burden upon the ground and sat down to rest in the shade of a grand house. Very soon he decided that he could not have chosen a pleasanter place. A delicious perfume of aloes, wood and pastels came from the open window and mingled with the scent of the rose water which steamed up from the hot pavement. Within the palace he heard some music, as of many instruments cunningly played, and the melodious warble of nightingales and other birds, and by this and the appetizing smell of many dainty dishes, of which he presently became aware. He judged that feasting and merrymaking were going on. He wondered who lived in this magnificent house, which he had never seen before. The street in which it stood, being one of which he seldom had occasion to pass. To satisfy his curiosity, he went up to some splendidly dressed servants who stood at the door and asked one of them, the name of the master of the mansion. What, replied he, do you live in Baghdad and do not know that here lives the noble Sinbad the sailor, the famous traveller who sailed over every sea upon which the sun shines? The porter who had often heard speak of the immense wealth of Sinbad could not help feeling envious 
of one whose lot seemed to be as happy as his own was miserable. Casting his eyes up to the sky, he exclaimed aloud, Consider, mighty creator of all things, the differences between Sinbad's life and mine. Every day I suffer a thousand hardships and misfortunes, and have hard work to get even enough bad barley bread to keep myself and my family alive. While the lucky Sinbad spends money right and left and lives upon the fat of the land. What has he done that you should give him this pleasant life? What have I done to deserve so hard a fate? So saying he stamped upon the ground like one beside himself with misery and despair. Just at this moment a servant came out of the palace and taking him by the arm said, Come with me, the noble Sinbad, my master, wishes to speak to you. Hinbad was not a little surprised at this summons, and feared that his unguarded words might have drawn upon him the displeasure of Sinbad. So he tried to excuse himself upon the pretext that he could not leave the burden which had been entrusted to him on the street. However, the lackey promised him that it should be taken care of, and urged him to obey the call so pressingly that at last the porter was obliged to yield. He followed the servant into a vast room, where a great company was seated round a table, covered with all sorts of delicacies. In the place of honour sat a tall, grave man, whose long white beard gave him a venerable air. Beside his chair stood a crowd of attendants, eager to minister to his wants. This was the famous Sinbad himself. The porter, more than ever alarmed at the sight of so much magnificence, tremblingly saluted the noble company. Sinbad making a sign to him to approach, caused him to be seated at his right hand, and himself heaped choice morsels upon his plate, and poured out for him a draught of excellent wine, and presently, when the banquet drew to a close, Sinbad spoke to him familiarly, asking his name and occupation. My lord, replied the porter, I'm Hindbad. I'm glad to see you here, continued Sinbad and I will answer for the rest of the company that they are equally pleased, but I wish you to tell me, what is that you said just now on the street? The Sinbad, passing by the open window, before the feast began, had heard his complaint, and therefore had sent for him. And this question, Himbad, was covered with confusion, and hanging down his head replied, My lord, I confess that, overcome by weariness and ill humour, I uttered indiscreet words, which I pray you to pardon me. Oh, replied Sinbad, do not imagine that I am so unjust as to blame you, on the contrary, 
I understand your situation and can pity you, only you appear to be mistaken about me and I wish to set you right. You doubtless imagine that I have acquired all the wealth and luxury that you see me enjoy without difficulty or danger, but this is far indeed from being the case. I have only reached this happy state after having years have suffered every possible kind of toil and danger. Yes, my noble friends, he continued, addressing the company, I assure you that my adventures have been strange enough to deter even the most avacious men from seeking wealth by traversing the seas. Since you have perhaps heard but confused accounts of my seven voyages and the dangers and wonders that I have met by sea and land, I will now give you a full and true account of them, which I think you will be well pleased to hear. As Sinbad was relating his adventures, chiefly on account of the porter, he ordered, before beginning his tale, that the burden which had been left in the street should be carried by some of his own servants to the place which Hinbad had set out at first, where he remained to listen to the story. The First Voyage I had inherited wealth from my parents and being young and foolish, I had first squandered it recklessly upon every kind of pleasure. But presently, finding that riches speedily take to themselves wings if managed as badly as I was managing mine, and remembering also that to be old and poor is misery indeed, I began to bethink me of how I could make the best of what still remained to me. I sold all my household goods by public auction and joined a company of merchants who traded by sea, embarking with them at Balsora in a ship which we had fitted out between us. We set sail and took our course towards the East Indies by the Persian Gulf, having the coast of Persia upon our left hand and upon our right, the shores of Arabia Phoenix. I was at first much troubled by the uneasy motion of the vessel, but speedily recovered my health, and since that hour have been no more plagued by seasickness. From time to time we landed at various islands, where we sold or exchanged our merchandise, and one day, when the wind dropped suddenly, we found ourselves becalmed close to a small island, like a green meadow, which only rose slightly above the surface of the water. Our sails were furled, and the captain gave permission to all who wished to land for a while and amuse themselves. I was among the number. But when, after strolling about for some time, we lighted a fire and sat down to enjoy the repast we have brought with us, we were all startled by a sudden violent trembling of the island, while at the same moment those left upon the ship set up an outcry 
bidding us to come on board for our lives, since what we had taken for an island was nothing but the back of a sleeping whale. Those who were nearest to the boat threw themselves into it, and others sprang into the sea. But before I could save myself, the whale plunged suddenly into the depths of the ocean, leaving me clinging to a piece of wood which we had brought to make our fire. Meanwhile a breeze had sprung up, and in the confusion that ensued on board our vessel, in hoisting the sails and taking up those who were in the boat and clinging to its sides, no one missed me, and I was left at the mercy of the waves. All that day I floated up and down, now beating this way, now that, and when night fell, I despaired for my life, but weary and spent as I was, I clung to my frail support, and great was my joy when the morning light showed me that I had drifted against an island. The cliffs were high and steep, but luckily for me some tree roots protruded in places, and by their aid I climbed up at last and stretched myself upon the turf at the top, where I lay more dead than alive, till the sun was high in the heavens. By that time I was very hungry, but after some searching I came upon some eatable herbs and a spring of clear water, and much refreshed I set out to explore the island. Presently I reached a great plain where a grazing horse was tethered, and as I stood looking at it I heard voices talking apparently underground and in a moment a man appeared who asked me how I came upon the island. I told him my adventures and heard in return that he was one of the grooms of Mirage, the king of the island, and that each year they come to feed their master's horses in this plain. He took me to a cave where his companions were assembled, and when I had eaten of the food they set before me, they bade me think myself fortunate to have come upon them when I did, since they were going back to their master on the morrow, and without our aid, I could certainly never have found my way to the inhabited part of the island. Early the next morning, we accordingly set out, and when we reached the capital, I was graciously received by the king, to whom I related my adventures, upon which he ordered that I should be well cared for and provided with such things as I needed. Being a merchant, I sought out men of my own profession, and particularly those who came from foreign countries, as I hoped in this way to hear news from Baghdad and find out some means of returning thither, for the capital was situated upon the seashore 
and visited by vessels from all parts of the world. In the meantime I heard many curious things, and answered many questions concerning my own country, for I talked willingly with all who came to me, also to while away the time of waiting, I explored a little island called Cassel, which belonged to King Mirage, and which was supposed to be inhabited by a spirit named Degiel. Indeed, the sailors assured me that often at night the playing of timbrels could be heard upon it. However, I saw nothing strange upon my voyage, saving some fish that were full 200 cubits long, but were fortunately more in dread of us than even we were of them, and fled from us if we did but strike upon a board to frighten them. Other fishes that were only a cubit long, which had heads like owls. One day after my return, as I went down to the quay, I saw a ship which had just cast anchor, and was discharging her cargo, while the merchants to whom it belonged were busily directing the removal of it to their warehouses. Drawing nearer, I pleasantly noticed that my own name was marked upon some of the packages, and having carefully examined them, I felt sure that they were indeed those which I had put on board our ship at Balzora. I then recognised the captain of the vessel, but as I was certain that he believed me to be dead, I went up to him and asked who owned the packages that I was looking at. They were aboard my ship, he replied, a merchant of Baghdad named Sinbad. One day, he and several of my other passengers landed upon what we supposed to be an island, but was really an enormous whale floating asleep upon the waves. No sooner did it feel upon its back the heat of the fire which had been kindled than it plunged into the depths of the sea. Several of the people who were upon it perished into the waters and among others this unlucky Sinbad. This merchandise is his, but I have resolved to dispose of it for the benefit of his family, if I should ever chance to meet with them. Captain, said I, I am that Sinbad, whom you believe to be dead, and those are my possessions. When the captain heard those words, he cried out in amazement, Lack a day, and what is the world coming to? In these days there is not an honest man to be met with. Do I not with my own eyes see Sinbad drown? And now you have the audacity to tell me that you are he. I should have taken you to be a just man, and yet for the sake of obtaining that which does not belong to you, you are ready to invent this horrible falsehood. Have patience and do me the favour to hear my story, said I. Speak then, replied the captain, I am all attention. 
so I told him of my escape and my fortunate meeting with the king's grooms, and how kindly I had been received at the palace. Very soon I began to see that I had made some impression upon him, and after the arrival of some of the other merchants, who showed great joy at once more seeing me alive, he declared that he also recognised me. Throwing himself upon my neck, he exclaimed, Heaven be praised that you have escaped from so great a danger. As to your gods, I pray you take them, and dispose of them as you please. I thanked him, and praised his honesty, begging him to accept several bales of merchandise in token of my gratitude, but he would take nothing. Of the choicest of my gods, I prepared a present for the king, who was at first amazed, having known that I had lost my all. However, when I explained to him how my bales had been miraculously restored to me, he graciously accepted my gifts, and in return gave me valuable things. I then took leave of him, and exchanging my merchandise for sandal and aloe woods, campor, nutmegs, cloves, peppers and ginger, I embarked upon the same vessel, and traded so successfully upon our homeward voyage, that I arrived in Balsora with about 100,000 sequins. My family received me, as with much joy, as I felt upon seeing them once more. I bought land and slaves, and built a large great house, in which I resolved to live happily, and in the enjoyment of all pleasures of life, to forget my past sufferings. Here Sinbad paused, and commanded the musicians to play again, while the feasting continued until evening. When the time came for the porter to depart, Sinbad gave him a purse containing 100 sequins, saying, Take this Sinbad and go home, but tomorrow come again, and you shall hear more of my adventures. The porter retired quite overcome by so much generosity, and you may imagine that he was also well received at home, where his wife and children thanked their lucky stars that he had found such a benefactor. The next day Hinbad, dressed in his best, returned to the voyager's house, and was received with open arms. As soon as all the guests had arrived, the banquet began as before, and when they had feasted long and merrily, Sinbad addressed them thus, My friends, I beg that you will give me your attention while I relate the adventures of my second voyage, which you will find even more astonishing than the first. The Second Voyage I had resolved, as you know, on my return from the first voyage, to spend the rest of my days quietly in Baghdad. But very slowly I grew tired of such an idle life, 
and longed once more to find myself upon the sea. I procured, therefore, such goods as were suitable for the places I intended to visit, and embarked for the second time in a good ship, with other merchants whom I knew to be honourable men. We went from island to island, often making excellent bargains, until one day we landed at a spot which though covered with fruit and trees, and abounding in springs of excellent water, appeared to possess neither houses nor people. While my companions wandered here and there, gathering flowers and fruit, I sat down in a shady place, and having heartily enjoyed the provisions and the wine I had brought with me, I fell asleep, lulled by the murmur of a clear brook which flowed close by. How long I slept I know not, but when I opened my eyes and started to my feet, I perceived with horror that I was alone and the ship was gone. I rushed to and fro, like one distracted, uttering cries of despair, and when from the shore I saw the vessel under full sail, just disappearing upon the horizon, I wished bitterly enough that I had been content to stay at home in safety, but since wishes could do me no good, I presently took courage and looked about me for a means of escape. When I climbed a tall tree, I first of all directed my anxious glances towards the sea, but finding nothing hopeful there, I turned landward, and my curiosity was excited by a huge dazzling white object, so far off that I could not make out what it might be. Descending from the tree, I hastily collected what remained of my provisions, and set off as fast as I could towards it. As I drew near it, it seemed to me to be a white ball of immense size and height, and when I could touch it, I found it marvellously smooth and soft, as it was impossible to climb, for it presented no foothold. I walked around it, seeking some opening, but there was none. I counted, however, that it was at least fifty paces round. By this time the sun was near setting, but quite suddenly it fell dark. Something like a huge black cloud came swiftly over me, and I saw with amazement that it was a bird of extraordinary size, which was hovering near. Then I remembered that I had often heard the sayer speak of a wonderful bird called a rock, and it occurred to me that the white object which had so puzzled me must be its egg. 
Sure enough, the bird settled slowly down upon it, covering it with its wings to keep it warm, and I cowered close beside the egg, in such a position that one of the bird's feet, which was as large as the trunk of a tree, was just in front of me. Taking off my turban, I bound myself securely to it with the linen in the hope that the rock, when it took flight next morning, would bear me away with it from the desolate island. And this was precisely what did happen. As soon as the dawn appeared, the bird rose into the air, carrying me up and up till I could no longer see the earth, and then suddenly it descended so swiftly that I almost lost consciousness, but I became aware that the rock had settled and that I was once again upon solid ground. I hastily unbound my turban from its foot and freed myself, and that not a moment too soon, for the bird pouncing upon a huge snake killed it with a few blows from its powerful beak, and seizing it up rose into the air once more and soon disappeared from my view. When I had looked about me, I began to doubt if I had gained anything by quitting the desolate island. The valley in which I found myself was deep and narrow, and surrounded by mountains which towered into the clouds, and was so steep and rocky that there was no way up of climbing up their sides. As I wandered about, seeking anxiously for some means of escaping this trap, I observed from the ground was strewed with diamonds, some of them an astonishing size. This sight gave me great pleasure, but my delight was speedily damped when I saw the numbers of horrible snakes, so long and so large, that the smallest of them could have swallowed an elephant with ease. Fortunately for me, they seemed to hide in caverns of the rocks by day and only came out by night, probably because of their enemy, the rock. All day long I wandered up and down the valley, and when it grew dusk, I crept into a little cave, and having blocked up the entrance to it with a stone, I ate part of my little store of food, and lay down to sleep, but all through the night the serpents crawled to and fro, hissing horribly, so that I could scarcely close my eyes for terror. I was thankful when the morning light appeared, and then I judged by the silence that the serpents had retreated to their dens. I came trembling out of my cave, and wandered up and down the valley once more, kicking the diamonds contemptuously out of my path, for I felt that they were indeed vain things to a man in my situation. At last overcome with weariness, I sat down upon a rock, when I had hardly closed my eyes, when I was startled by something which fell to the ground, with a thud 
close beside me. It was a huge piece of fresh meat, and as I stared at it, several more pieces rolled over the cliffs in different places. I've always thought the stories that the sailors told of the famous Valley of Diamonds and of the cunning way which some merchants had devised for getting at the precious stones were mere travellers' tales invented to give pleasure to the hearers. But now I perceive that they were surely true. These merchants came to the valley at the time when the eagles which keep their eyries in the rocks had hatched their young. The merchants then threw great lumps of meat into the valley, these falling with so much force upon the diamonds, were sure to take up some of the precious stones with them when the eagles pounced upon the meat and carried it off to their nests to feed their hungry broods. When the merchants scaring away the parent birds with shouts and outcries would secure their treasures. Until this moment, I had looked upon the valley as my grave, for I had seen no possibility of getting out of it alive. But now I took courage and began to devise a means of escape. I began by picking up all the largest diamonds I could find, storing them carefully in the leathern wallet which had held my provisions. This I tied securely to my belt. I then chose the piece of meat which seemed most suited to my purpose, and with the aid of my turban, bound it firmly to my back. This done, I laid down upon my face and awaited the coming of the eagles. I soon heard the flapping of their mighty wings above me, and had the satisfaction of feeling one of them seize upon my piece of meat and me with it and rise slowly towards his nest into which he presently dropped me. Luckily for me, the merchants were on the watch and setting up their usual outcries. They rushed to the nest, scaring away the eagle. Their amazement was great when they discovered me, and also their disappointment, and with one accord they fell to abusing me for having robbed them of their usual profit. Addressing myself to one who seemed most aggrieved, I said, I'm sure if you knew all that I have suffered, you would show more kindness towards me, and as for diamonds, I have enough here for the very best for you and me and all your company. So saying, I showed them to him. The others all crowded round me, wondering at my adventures and admiring the device by which I escaped from the valley. And when they had led me to their camp and examined my diamonds, they assured me that in all the years they had carried on their trade, they had seen no stones to be compared with them for size and beauty. I found that each merchant chose a particular nest and took his chance of what he might find in it. 
So I begged the one who owned the nest to which I had been carried to take as much as he would of my treasure, but he contented himself with one stone, and that by no means the largest, assuring me that with such a gem his fortune was made, and he need toil so more. I stayed with the merchants several days, and then, as they were journeying homewards, I gladly accompanied them. Our way lay across high mountains, infested with frightful serpents, but we had the good luck to escape them and come at last to the seashore. Thence we sailed to the island of Rohat, where the campor trees grow to such a size that a hundred men could shelter under one of them with ease. The sap flows from an incision made high up in the tree into a vessel hung there to receive it, and soon hardens into the substance known as campor, but the tree itself withers up and dies when it has been so treated. In the same island we saw the rhinoceros, an animal who was smaller than the elephant and larger than the buffalo. It has one horn about a cubit long, which is solid but has a furrow from the base to the tip. Upon it, it is traced in white lines, the figure of a man. The rhinoceros fights with the elephant and transfixing him with his horn, carries him off upon his head, but becomes blinded with the blood of the enemy. He falls helpless to the ground, and then comes the rock, and clutches them both in his talons, and takes them to feed his young. This doubtless astonishes you, but if you do not believe my tale, Go to Rohat and see for yourself, for fear of wearying you, I pass over in silence many other wonderful things which we saw on this island. Before we left I exchanged one of my diamonds for much goodly merchandise, by which I profited greatly on our homeward way. At last we reached Balsora whence I hastened to Baghdad, where my first action was to bestow large sums of money upon the poor, after which I settled down to enjoy tranquilly the riches I had gained with so much toil and pain. Having thus related the adventures of this second voyage, Sinbad again bestowed a hundred sequins upon Hinbad, inviting him to come again on the following day and hear how he fared upon his third voyage. The other guests also departed to their homes, but all returned at the same hour next day, including the porter, whose former life of hard work and poverty had already began to seem like a bad dream. Again, after the feast was over, Sinbad claimed the attention of his guests and began the account of his third voyage.
Hello and welcome to this meditation where I will guide you on a peaceful journey through the mountains, allowing you to feel relaxed and calm, slowing you down to receive a perfect night's sleep, or to enjoy the rest of your day. Get into a comfortable position and make sure you will not be disturbed for the duration of this recording. Take a nice full breath in. And if you have your eyes still open, don't look at anything in particular. As you breathe out, let your eyes ever so slowly close. Breathe in deeply again, opening your eyes as you inhale, and when you exhale, let your eyelids become heavy and gently come together and notice how the darkness of your closed eyes automatically relaxes your body. Now imagine that you have been driving for some time to the great rocky mountains. You can see the tops of the mountains covered in white snow grow from the horizon. You can see the bright blue sky without a cloud in sight. The day is cool and crisp, and you roll down your windows to breathe this fresh mountain oxygen. The perfection of this day is so soothing and relaxing. Fir trees and trees with pine cones and cones are lining the highways if they are like the paintbrushes of earth, painting the blue sky above. The mountains are drawing near as you ride along the highway. They slowly soar into the sky. They seem to grow endlessly, and you wonder how more massive can they get? You can make out their jagged surface, and how snow is collected in the 
caps of the ridges. The sun reflecting off the snow is as white as milk and the places shrouded in shadows glow with a light turquoise. These mountains have been here for thousands of years, formed by the earth, slowly moving. It seems like no life grows on these mountains after a certain altitude, and you can see why. The air gets thin at the height of these amazing rock formations, and the weather is harsh and inhospitable way up there. You've been zoning out on the beauty of this day, and you hear your GPS remind you that the turn is coming up, and you feel a rise of relaxation in you because you are ready for a rest after the long road trip. This road is long and winding, the forest that you are passing though is immaculate, you are surrounded by millions of trees, constantly producing oxygen, your windows are still down, and you can smell the dampness of the woods, handling the curves with ease, this drive is so relaxing. You can see the sun rays cutting through the trees as you travel along. Happy that you have a watchful eye on the road ahead. You notice a family of elk is crossing ahead. And you slow down to a complete stop, you watch as this family does not fear you at all, there is a magnificent buck with a long antlers atop his head, his fur is marked in a way that you know he must be one of the most beautiful of his kind. The mother elk is delicately built, but you can see she is wise. Her two fawns follow close behind, grazing a few things as they follow their parents. The family slowly crosses the road, as if it is no different from the woods. And you quietly watch in awe as they continue into the woods until you know you can no longer see them. 
thankful for this experience, you continue your drive, you don't need GPS to remind you where to go at this point, because you have been down this road before, you've come to the entrance of your private cabin, nestled in the woods, this place is miles away from any town, as well as any neighbours, the cabin is the perfect size and has all you need, you go inside your cabin and everything is clean and ready for you, there is some chopped wood waiting on the front porch, so you can start a fire quickly and easily, not only for the warmth, but you really love the sound of a crackling fire, and to the side of the cabin you can see an old tree trunk and piles of wood and an axe, ready for you to chop, if you so desire, you get inside and you get the fire going, after the fire is going, you have a seat on that nice couch, and you listen to the sounds gazing at the flames, you could watch the fire for hours, but you desire to head outside, because the sunset is at its most beautiful at this time, you walk out the front door, to one of the most beautiful sights you've ever seen, your cabin is situated in front of a crystal clear pond, and the view of the mountains in the distance is breathtaking, there is a very small dock, built out into the water, just big enough for you to walk out on, walking down a gentle footpath that leads to the pond, you notice the earth below seems to almost support your every step, and you make your way to the edge of this dock, and sit down, dipping your bare feet into the crisp water, your feet make contact with the water, sending out the only ripples across the glass-like surface of the pond, and you watch as the miniature waves travel slowly out in all directions, from where you are, the surface of the water is reflecting the mountain in front of you, reminding you of a landscape painting, that's simply upside down, this pond represents your mind, 
On the surface it is calm and serene, but you know that underneath there is a world of life, a whole world of life. It's amazing. The sun is beginning to set, turning the white snow on the mountain tops into shades of cream and light yellow. The sky behind the mountain is darkening into a deep royal blue, and you follow the outline of the jagged edges of the mountain as it contrasts with the sky. You breathe in the energy of this magnificent moment, feeling so deeply relaxed, with complete peace of mind. All you can do is be fully immersed in the beauty of the nature around you, and you are feeling so relaxed and ready for a good night's sleep in your cabin, but you must wait for the sun to fully set, because you love seeing the night sky here. You can see some prominent stars are out already. You hear the crickets begin to chirp as the sun is chased away by the night sky. At first it is only a few crickets, but their numbers grow as it becomes darker. The yellows on the mountain from the sunlight has faded to greys and blues as the sun is setting, and you know no matter how dark it gets, the snow on the mountains seem to always be visible to some degree. The night sky is a matte grey, now a dark grey, and more stars are appearing. There is no moon out tonight, so the stars will be bright. The 
there doesn't seem to be any pattern to the twinkle. All you know that it is flashing just for you. You feel so sleepy. You can already imagine how cosy the bed in the cabin is. So you head back across the short dock, hearing the boards of wood squeak below your feet. You must be surrounded by thousands of crickets, because it sounds like a symphony around you. You can see the warm light of the fireplace emanating from the cabin windows. As you get to the front porch, you are greeted with the deepest sense of being home, and it feels so good. Opening the door, you see the fire burning gently, and the cosy bed waiting for you. You know the fire is safe for the night, because there is an ornate grate that you have placed in front of the opening. You pull back the cosy handmade quilt and the white sheets to reveal the fluffiest pillows that you have ever seen. They are like two clouds waiting to be snuggled with. You get into the sheets and cover yourself with the blanket. The weight of the blanket wraps perfectly to your body and the pillow cradles your head just like a mother cradles their baby. This is the most relaxed you've ever been. You tune into the sounds of the crackling fire and this deepens your relaxation even more. You feel comfortably and completely safe in this cabin, ready to have the most relaxing sleep in your life. Remember the mountain that waits outside the cabin. You can see it in your mind just as clearly because you've created a permanent image of this beautiful formation. The mountain represents your physical body, always strong and showing its beauty to others. Remember the pond and how it represents your mind, calm on the surface and highly intelligent in its depths. Remember the family of elk crossing the road, feel the strength in this family, they know exactly where to go and how to navigate the endless woods. This family represents your connection to others 
as well as how you treat yourself with honour, dignity and certainty. And remember the cosy cabin, it represents your soul, always warm, tidy and there to support you as you feel deeply relaxed, allow this experience to fill you with delight, you are strong, you are noble, you are calm and you are beautiful inside and out, breathing gently and smoothly, you feel more energized and excited to conquer your goals and dreams, and you're ready to go to sleep now, 